Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower clear. Welcome to Space 3D. This is part three and the conclusion of our interview with Morgan and Lee Grant Irons on sustainable environmental systems and terraforming. Morgan is a soil and crop sciences PhD candidate in the Lehman Lab at Cornell University, where her research focuses on microbial adhesion mechanisms and organomineral organo-organic interactions in soil aggregates and their effects on soil organic carbon sequestration under earth gravity and microgravity. Lee Grant Irons is a scientist and engineer with experience in the fields and industries of space plasma and computational physics, nuclear power design and operations, radioactive and hazardous waste management, environmental remediation, and large-scale engineering and construction projects. As the executive director of the nonprofit Norfolk Institute, he is working on the existential challenges of human sustainability on Earth and in space. In this episode, co-hosts Tom Hill and Eleanor Rangers conduct a lightning round of questions and answers with their guests. While the answers were much more involved than a typical lightning round, that's okay, because we had the opportunity to discuss the Martian, musings on a biosphere three and the subject of biosolids okay i've got i've got one that deals with some of these topics but uh, we'll do it in a speed round one minute from each of you on the Martian and its uh, relation to this topic. <laughs> okay, I guess I'll start because I get asked this question a lot. Uh, so I've worked with Mars regolith simulants. Uh, when I was an undergraduate Duke, I did a large scale Mars agriculture experiment. I like to say that I started it before the Martian movie came out, before I even knew what the Martian was. And as soon as water touches that substrate, it becomes cement. There is a cement crust that forms right on top of it. So with that experience and then looking at the Martian, I was like, nah, <laughs> the soil does not work that way. <laughs> and so I, one of the things I had to figure out was how to manage the soil and the unique characteristics of that soil, as well as understand how to start the biogeochemical cycles you can't just simply put biosolids, human feces into it and expect plants to look that good. Uh, you need particular microorganisms like rhizobium bacteria that would fix nitrogen. You need uh, to make sure that you have nutrients that are able to be transformed or are in a bioavailable form that plants can take up. And then you need to actually manage and treat the regolith, the Martian soil, to start forming those aggregates and that porosity. Because like I said, water touches it, you create the cement and this compaction, 
And roots are not going to be able to get through that. The stem is not going to be able to poke through the surface of that. You need to manage the soil, which I figured out how to do that with Mars regolith simulant. Cool. More than a minute. But, Lee? Okay. Well, so right at the beginning of the movie, you have a major disruptive event occurring with with a Martian sandstorm. Now, we all know that that was just some uh, <laughs> some fictional license of, of the author. I mean... He even they, admitted it, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the air is not dense enough to to really provide such a huge physical force, even if it's moving at high velocity. But, you know, you could, you could come up with a number of other examples of potential disruptive events that, that could happen to, to a colony on Mars, um, whether it be a, you know, a meteor strike or, or whether it be Earth bacteria that mutates into, into some pathogen uh, that starts either affecting the humans or, or starts affecting the plant life that they're trying to grow. And so the key is, well, there's a number of, a number of things that Morgan goes into in her patent, but, you know, generally the key is biodiversity. It's not just growing monoculture potatoes. Uh, yes, the, the character had to do that to survive, and that was a storyline. But you want to be sustainable on Mars you got to have biodiversity, and what the biodiversity is going to do is it's going to show you what's going to fail and what's going to succeed. And for the stuff that starts failing, you just start replacing it with the stuff that's succeeding. And if you have enough stuff, <laughs> enough bacteria types, bacteria strains, uh, plants, plant varieties, both both. Uh, both those that provide food and those that don't provide food, but maybe just provide oxygen and, and, and other kinds of ecosystem services. If you have enough, enough biodiversity of plants there, the hope is that when an unplanned event occurs, because it will, the humans will be able to fall back on their natural terraformed environment to be able to adapt to the unplanned event just as we've done for millennia here on Earth. Cool. Two different views. I liked it. Yeah. I have one to, to get your, your thoughts on. So one Earth analog that was attempted was, of course, Biosphere 2. And unfortunately, they had a number of issues. If you were designing Biosphere 3, what are some things that you would uh, change to make it hopefully more successful? Something that immediately comes to mind is actually bringing in and applying soil science principles and theories as well as uh, some of the theories of ecological succession. There's a lot to be said about the theory of ecological succession that I won't go into, uh, but pretty much understanding how an ecological system forms from a bare rock system, whether going to be your pioneer species, the first species that come in to start the biochemical cycles that start the geological cycle of biologically weathering and breaking down that parent material rock to start forming uh, your chemical cycles to start forming your soil. And then 
the first plant species to come in to start adding that organic matter uh, into your soils to start creating the organic horizon uh, of your soil and environment. And then over time, how does that system change as more plant species are brought in as the soil start continues to form over time? And having that understanding and approaching a system that way allows you to create a more naturally cycling, natural functioning system that now has that soil foundation that it needs to support a biodiversity of microorganisms, a biodiversity of soil organisms and plants that can balance itself, that can, when a disturbance or a load comes in, be able to have that plasticity to react to it and not fail, Um, like we have here on Earth. Uh, We see here on Earth that when we try to coerce a system to function a certain way, like an agricultural system, uh, that it is very susceptible to disturbances uh, and edge effects because with agricultural systems, you're creating a fragmented ecosystem and there's a lot of research that goes into fragmented ecosystems as well. But pretty much what I'm saying here is that if I were to create a Biosphere 3, I would bring in these different viewpoints that we're missing in the creation of Biosphere 2 and really start the process of soil formation and ecological system secession in an expedited way. So instead of an ecosystem forming over hundreds of years, we expedite it uh, so that we get to a system, the system goals that we're looking for sooner. Okay. Great answer, Morgan. So Biosphere 3, I'll, I'll uh, spin off of what Morgan said and, and get into the fact that you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to redesign Earth in a bubble, right? You're trying to recreate Earth's, Earth's environment in a, in, a, in a smaller bubble footprint. So whatever that design looks like, it's going to have what Morgan referred to as some kind of some forced cycle stuff and then also some natural cycle stuff. And we go into this in our paper a little bit where forced things are, are like engineered systems that are built to work within certain parameters and output within certain parameters. And, and they're not, you don't, you don't want them to vary outside of that. A natural cycle system is something that, that has more ability to adjust to to uh, the circumstances, the inputs and the outputs. The environmental theory is that theoretically a, a, a natural cycle system is more sustainable than a force cycle system because force cycle systems, being engineered systems, are susceptible to part failure and uh, system breakdowns uh, and the various inefficiencies that, that are naturally involved in engineered systems. Whatever your system design is, whatever your biosphere sphere system design is with engineered elements and and natural elements, you need to understand the ecosystem services network that that system is creating. And 
as part of that, you, you need to understand what your human consumption loads will be and how that human consumption and, and those loads of human consumption, how the feedbacks from that feedback into your ecosystem network and, and impact it. You also have to come up with a subset of classes of disruptions that, that could theoretically happen within the system and understand how those disruptions could affect the system. Theoretically, you have an infinite number of possible disruptions. Realistically, you have to limit yourself because there's just too many to consider. The way you figure that out, and we go into this in our paper, you identify, once, once you have this network figured out, you see all the ecosystem services, how they go from the basic uh, supporting services of the soil through the regulating services of, of providing water purification and oxygen generation all the way to the direct provisioning services to humans of, of the stuff that they actually utilize from the environment. Once you understand that entire network, what you're doing is you're looking for the points in that network where consumer resource interactions occur that disproportionately influence the ecosystem, your ecosystem. And those are going to be your control points. And once you understand what those are, then you look at how your expected human loads and your abnormal human loads, because anybody that's engineered a system knows that there are three scenarios you have to consider. The normal operating scenario, what we call in the space industry nominal conditions, right? The abnormal operating scenarios where occasionally you'll go into abnormal levels of loads based upon certain scenarios or evolutions. And then the emergency situations, which is really when these disruption scenarios occur, you go into an emergency mode of operation. How does your system respond? Those are the three things that you're addressing in, in anything that you engineer. So you need to understand how the human loads, both nominal and abnormal, as well as the disruptions, affect those control points in your network. And then you're looking at, how those impacts to those control points then feed through to impacting the points in your ecosystem where the humans consume their resources through this network. And you're looking at this, what you're really worried about is the stability of those human consumer resource points. And in our paper, we go into four factors that, that we quantify and that, and that can be measured and calculated, uh, resistance, resilience, consistence, and persistence. And you want to look at all these scenarios and see how those four stability properties are impacted at your human consumer resource points. And, and then you're going to compare that to a natural environment in Earth for the same kinds of scenarios. And once you normalize those calculations, you're gonna get what you, what, what you call terraform, sustainability, stability properties. And the closer they are to one, the more sustainable your 
Biosphere 3 system is. And now you take that and you stick it in Mars or, or in an extreme environment on Earth, and, and you're set. That's the theory. Wow. And all I can say is it sounds complicated <laughs> in my, uh, from my naive point of view. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's not naive. It, it is complicated, and, and in our paper we say we have to get away from, and, and this is no slam on rocket scientists and rocket engineers, okay, but not everything is a rocket engineering problem. Yeah. You, you, have to, you have to bring start bringing in farmers and earth environmental scientists into this conversation and into these assessments of these systems that are being designed and planned to sustain humans in space. It's not good enough to just say, oh, yeah, our system is sustainable because it, because it has – a, a biologic in it that can reproduce as long as we continue to feed it this nutrient that we get in our supply chain from Earth. Um, just because it's living doesn't mean it's sustainable. And you just can't throw the word sustainable out there and and move on. And, you know, everybody assumes, oh, I, they said it was sustainable, so we guess it is. You've got to be able to actually quantify that. And the only way you're getting there with sustainability being defined based on an earth basis, the only way you're going to get there is to keep, is to understand how your system ties back to that earth basis, which includes all the environmental science that goes into that. And the only way you're getting there is bringing in a multidisciplinary team to look at this huge system of systems that you've set up to tie this spaceship floating out in space between Earth and Mars back to the soil on Earth that is fundamentally the thing that's supporting them. And I like to point out real quick that the term sustainability comes out of environmental science and natural resource management here on Earth. Uh, it's been around, ooh, I'm trying to think, I, it came, I know that in Germany, like over, like in the 1800s, they coined it in the forestry management uh, service in Germany. So this idea of sustainability has been around, but ultimately it came out of natural resource management and environmental science. So it kind of makes sense that when we're talking about sustainability, that these conversations, this research should have an environmental scientist, soil scientist, it should be a multidisciplinary team uh, that's working on anything dealing with the question of sustainability. And I'm not even clear that, you know, are, well, I mean, Artemis is a, is a separate issue, but I, I certainly haven't really heard about integrating these multidisciplinary uh, considerations into anything they might even be trying experimentally with Artemis, but I think that's a separate, separate discussion. Yeah, Tom, that's a short-term, short-term yeah. mission. So before, while we were talking, before you showed up, Eleanor, I said I was going to mention two, uh, 
two examples I had on this. The first uh, Mars Arctic Research Station that the Mars Society went, one of the things that they tried was a bioregenerative, not regenerative, but a bioprocessing toilet. And uh, something went wrong and the whatever microbes died. And it was kind of like, okay, we're going with chemicals. You know, that was a... <laughs> An early early lesson learned there. Yep. And then another uh, sample. I I hike uh, parts of the Appalachian Trail with some friends, and they they the uh, the privies there along the way. They try to make them uh, at least smell less. Um, but the simple directions nobody follows because you're only supposed to do number two into there because then you can put in some leaves and it'll you know it'll process and uh, the natural natural materials will take over but if you if you do number one in there uh it causes a real stink because you're adding ammonia and uh yeah people don't get that right <laughs> yeah that's that's very interesting and the labs that i work in up here at, in ithaca new york at cornell one of the questions that they're looking at and working with community collaborators about is this what they call peace cycling. Uh, how do you bring human solid waste and pee back into the biogeochemical cycling that we're uh, dependent on? And how do you do so in a way that <laughs> where people don't get offended by it because it's smelly or it's like, oh, why, why would I bring like number one and number two back into my life? <laughs> Oh yeah, the more the the uh, greenhouse that Morgan did her undergraduate research in when she started bringing in biosolids is what it's called. Um, that place got smelly real quick. Yep, and we're sensitive to that smell because it's uh, it's ascribed to bad news. Right, and and you we're told from very young age, you know, <laughs> wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. You don't want to get that stuff in your food, right? Biosolids can be made agricultural grade, but it does not get rid of the smell. <laughs> yeah, and you do have to be careful about biosolids from your water treatment facilities because they do go for a treatment process, but it doesn't necessarily take out like med medicine that went through a person's system. If it's mixing with industry, there might be some heavy metals in there. And that's something that uh, the agricultural industry is dealing with slash has had to deal with. So there's definitely research and more conversations that need to be had about where you get your fertilizer fertilizer sources from. This has been certainly um, a enlightening and mind-bending uh, discussion this evening, and I've certainly learned a tremendous amount that I never even sort of thought about, or at least conceptually. So thank you. Thank you both for that. Certainly. It was very enjoyable. Yes, thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for our discussion about Apollo flight suits and beyond with former ILC Dover historian Bill Avery. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.